Good afternoon. Church, I can't tell you how good it is to be back. I was miserable without you guys last Sunday. Uh, seriously, I would have much rather been here than at home sick. So I am very excited uh, to be back here. Uh, but before we get started, uh, please, please pray with me real quick before we continue. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege we have to gather here today, Lord, to come together and worship you and lift up your name and to gather around your word. Lord, your word is trustworthy and sufficient. And Lord, we ask that today you would use it to shape us and to make us more like you. Let us be encouraged by the preaching of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. How many of you guys still remember your favorite teacher from high school? Okay, like six of you. Everybody else, sorry, I know it's been a while. Uh, I still remember, some of the high schoolers probably don't like any of their teachers, but that's okay. I have a favorite teacher. It was my English and writing teacher. Her name was Mrs. Allen. And she was my favorite for, for a whole bunch of reasons. We had fun in her class. She was uh, just, just an entertaining teacher. She was a very good teacher. I learned a lot in her classes. But the reason that I, that I loved Mrs. Allen so much is she was my most reasonable teacher. She was always willing, willing to cut us a little bit of slack. See, because she, she knew that as high school students, I know the adults, like high school students aren't busy, but as a high schooler, you feel busy. You've got friends, you've got your family, you've got your homework, you've got sports, you've got all kinds of stuff going on. And so as long as you communicated with Mrs. Allen, she was always willing to cut you a break, to give you a little bit of an extension, if you need, as long as you had a legitimate reason or excuse. But when she would do this, there was always one condition. You had to give her your word that you would have your best work done and turned in by the extended date. She did not take promises. You had to give her your word. You could put up half a million dollars in your firstborn child. It wasn't good enough for her. It had to be your word. And when you gave her your word, she expected you to keep it. And this was really helpful for me. It's, it sounds a little bit silly, but, but it really ingrained into me the importance of being a person who honors your word, of being a trustworthy person. Because we know how frustrating it is to have a friend who's not trustworthy, whose word really isn't worth that much. They make plans with you, and inevitably, they end up canceling. They, they, they tell you they're gonna come over and help you with a project, but they always find something better to do. You just can't count on their word. That kind of person is incredibly frustrating to be friends with. Our word matters. Our word determines whether we are trustworthy, whether we can be depended on or relied upon. And that is even more true when we speak about God. How can we know he is trustworthy? How can we know that we can rely on him if we cannot trust what he has told us in his word? My hope today is that you will leave in awe of the trustworthiness and dependability of God's word. We're in Daniel chapter 11 now, and uh, I'm, I'm very excited about that. Daniel 11, it's a long chapter. It is 45 verses. Originally, I planned to just truck through the whole chapter in one sermon, but out of my great love for all of you, I have decided against a two-hour sermon, so you're welcome. We'll be spending just over 40, 45 minutes in chapter 11 today instead. 
And chapter 11 can be divided into three sections. So you can see up there, uh, you, you have the warring kings of Greece, you have the terrifying reign of a man named Antiochus IV, and then in the last section, you have the Antichrist and the time of the end. We're going to be focusing just on verses 2 through 20 today. And, and I have been itching to get to Daniel 11. Like since we started Daniel, I have been looking forward to chapter 11 because this is one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Uh, I, I truly think this is one of the strongest defenses of the Christian faith because the prophecy of Daniel 11, it is so specific. It is so detailed, so specific, so much that, that I can't possibly unpack every detail, but I'm gonna do my best to summarize, to hit the highlights so you can kind of understand what's being talked about here in these 20 verses. Daniel 11 is so specific, in fact, that critics of the book have suggested that, you know, it, it, it isn't actually prophecy. That somebody, way after the fact, wrote all of these historical de details down and then presented it as if it was prophecy. And that the man who did that was an, anon an, an anonymous person, not named Daniel, in 164-ish BC. But even a, a historian in that time period would have a very difficult time tracking down all of the details that are included in this chapter. And we've already spent some time when we first started the book of Daniel. We, we talked about the authorship of the book. We talked about the dating, when it was written, and, and things like that. So we're not going to revisit all of that again. If you're curious about it, I would love to talk to you about it after. You can come ask me. Uh, but we're not going to revisit that today. But what I'll say is that every bit of evidence that we have tells us this book was written by Daniel in or very close to the year 530 BC. And that's very, very important because we're gonna see Daniel predict very, very specific historical events very, very far in advance. So we're gonna walk through the text as we normally would, but this is a unique chapter and there is a lot of detail, a lot of history to unpack. And I know some of you might not be History buffs, you might not enjoy history, and if that's the case, then you're going to have to suck it up because we've got a lot of history to work through here today. But I think, even if you don't like history, you're going to find this pretty amazing. And then after we've talked through that history and all those details, we're going to close with two principles that we can pull from this passage. So turn with me to Daniel 11 and begin reading in verse 2. And now... I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. But not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. <clears throat> so chapter 10 ended with the angel Gabriel promising Daniel to share what was in what he called the book of truth. It, it was to share what was coming for God's people, to share what God had planned for human history. And now Gabriel begins to share what that truth is. And so Daniel receives this vision in, during the reign of Cyrus. He was the first king of Persia. 
But it says that after him, three more would follow. And since I know you're all dying for the names of those three Persian kings, it was Cambyses, Smyrdia, and Darius Hispastes. Write it down. No, you don't have to write those down. You don't need to know any of those. But after those three, a fourth king would arise. And you probably know this one, Xerxes. Even if you don't know who he is, you've probably heard the name. He's the king from the book of Esther. If any of you have seen the movie 300, uh, he's the really weird looking guy where you can't really tell if he's a guy or a girl and he's got all the weird jewelry and stuff. I don't know why they made him look like that, but in the movie 300, that is Xerxes. Very famous, you've probably heard of him. He was also the king that instigated a conflict with Greece that would eventually be the downfall of the Persian Empire. So there were a handful of kings after Xerxes, uh, but, but Persian history is really relegated just to this one verse. Daniel is kind of zooming through Persian history to get us to the Greek Empire because the Greek Empire is really the one uh, that he wants to focus on because they have a, a lot to do with the people of Israel at this time. So Greece is introduced in verse three with the arrival of a mighty king and that mighty king is Alexander the Great. We've talked about him already through Daniel. You know him from history. No one stood in his way. It took him 10 years to conquer pretty much everything in the known world. There's a map up there, if it's up there now. Yeah, you can see all the way from Greece in the top left down into Egypt, all the way stretching over into the land of India. This, this guy took over everything. Anyone that came, came against him was absolutely and utterly crushed. But as quickly as Alexander rose to power, he died. He got sick died of a fever, and his kingdom was broken and shattered. And we know, just as Daniel predicted here, his kingdom did not go to his posterity, to his children. They were both assassinated. And so his kingdom was split among his four generals, Antigonus, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. And two of those names are not important. Two of them we're gonna talk about quite a bit more, but none of these men would ever come close to reaching the heights that Alexander did. Alexander died... His kingdom was split 323 B.C. Daniel wrote about all of this in 530 B.C. So Daniel was prophesying about these events 207 years in advance. Man cannot do that, but God can. And this is God's word. This broken, splintered kingdom prophesied about over 200 years earlier would go on to lead to centuries of destruction and division and brokenness. It would lead to all kinds of suffering and pain and hardship for the people of God. But God was sovereignly guiding history every single step of the way. Look back to verse five with me. Then the king of the south shall be strong. But one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm. And he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. Verses 5 through 20 focus on, on just two of those four kingdoms. So Alexander, his kingdom split into these smaller Greek kingdoms. And five through 20 focuses on the kingdom of the Ptolemies in the south and the kingdom of the Seleucids 
in the north. So as you go through Daniel 11, you're gonna see king of the south, king of the south, king of the north. That is the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So the, the Ptolemies are the kingdom in the south, primarily in and around Egypt. Seleucids are that larger kingdom up in the north, and they encompass Syria, Persia, Babylon. And the focus is on these two because these are the ones that cause havoc for God's people. There's another map that should be up here. Yeah, there you go. And you can see how these kingdoms were divided. You have the, the other two that are kind of up in the top left. Those are pretty much irrelevant for us today. The big green one, that's the Seleucid. That's the kings of the north. The little red one, those are the kings of the south, the Ptolemies. But if you look at the border of these two kingdoms, I put a little green circle there so you can see it. That is not all of it, but a good chunk of the promised land, the land of Israel, the land that God had promised to his people, where his people were currently still living. Israel was right on the border of these kings who would war and, and there'd be conflict and battles all through the next couple of hundred years. They're right in the thick of it. Israel would be the literal battleground for constant war between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So for hundreds of years, Israel is caught in this game of tug of war between two much larger and much more vicious kingdoms. Now history tells us that, that immediately after Alexander's death, Ptolemy, he was strong. He went down, he claimed his region of Egypt pretty much immediately. Seleucus was not quite as strong and he didn't have his own territory. He was originally a general for Ptolemy. But eventually, with the help of Ptolemy, he gained a foothold in the north. And he planted his, his flag there. He became the king and took the throne there. That's exactly what Daniel predicted in verse 5. The prince or the general of the southern kingdom would attain a greater authority. Seleucus gained a much greater authority. Look at the size of his kingdom compared to the much smaller southern kingdom. Seleucus claimed that northern throne in 312 BC. Daniel prophesied about this specific event 218 years in advance. But in their pride, these two kings, neither Ptolemy nor Seleucus, were content. They, they wanted more territory, more power, more land, more people. They wanted more for themselves. And so this would eventually lead to conflict. And that conflict would continue for some time until these two kings died and their sons assumed the throne. So now you've got two new kings. Ptolemy II, he sought to make an alliance with the northern king Antiochus II. And so Ptolemy decided the best way to do this is I'm gonna offer my daughter for a political marriage and it'll kind of bridge the peace between us. So I'm gonna offer my daughter Berenice in exchange for a treaty. And the terms of this treaty, I mean, they were, they were logically sound. It was, hey, I will give you my daughter and uh, you'll take her as your wife. Whatever child you have with my daughter will end up being the heir to the northern throne and then he will be the bridge of peace between the two kingdoms. Makes sense? So Antiochus, the northern king, he's, he's, all, he's on board with this and he decides to go through with this, but there was a minor hiccup. Antiochus was already married to his half-sister, a woman named Laodicea, and he had had a child with her. So in order to honor his agreement, he had to divorce his wife, send her and their son away, and then take this new woman, Berenice, as his wife, and he did, and they had a son, and it was good for a while. But the whole time he was married to his new wife, 
He still loved his ex-wife. He would go and visit her. He longed to see her again. So when the southern king eventually died, the northern king got prideful again and said, well, I, I don't need to honor our agreement. He's not here to enforce it. It doesn't really matter. So he divorced, divorced his new wife to go and get his old wife. Yeah, I know, it's a whole mess. There's tons of family and political drama here. But it gets, it gets worse, just, just wait. <clears throat> so he goes, he gets his old wife and his, and his son, brings them back to live with him. Uh, and just as Daniel said, Ptolemy, the southern king, and his daughter did not retain the strength of their arm. That means they didn't retain their power, their influence. The one king died, and then Berenice was pushed out. She was no longer wanted in the northern kingdom. So he goes to get his old wife, brings her home, but turns out, and men, take note here, women do not appreciate being pawns in your political machinations. So she decided to get even, I know, I'm gonna poison and kill my husband. And that's what she did. Antiochus was poisoned and killed by her husband, but that was not enough. She was still angry about the other, the other mistress, the other side person, and so she has her people hunt her down and kills Berenice and her son. And then Laodicea returned to the north where she reigned kind of in the interim until her son was old enough to be king. All of this took place during the year 246 BC. Daniel prophesied about all this specific political and family drama 284 years before any of it happened. Church, who can do this? Yeah, only God can do this. But the family drama is not over yet because Ptolemy III, that's the brother of Berenice, he gets angry. He hears that his sister was murdered and so he launches a full-scale invasion of the north. And this invasion was a roaring success. He basically just walks in, marches his way into the capital. He loots and sacks the capital and he puts Laodicea, the other woman, to death. So the Ptolemies had utterly routed the Seleucids and this is exactly what Daniel predicted in verses seven through nine. Look at that with me. <clears throat> and from a branch, from her roots, that's, that's the brother, Ptolemy third, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years, he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Now, this is a little bit odd, because you'd think that after this king has just walked in, totally destroyed the northern army, completely leveled their capital city, killed their ruler, it would be a pretty easy thing for him to jump at all this new territory and new power. But he didn't do that. He looted the capital and then returned home with the Egyptian gods. And it tells us that he didn't attack again for many years. So why wouldn't he just finish the job? Well, this is just another example of the incredible accuracy of Daniel's prophecy. Because while Ptolemy, the king of the south, was campaigning in the north, all these rebellions sprang up in his home country. And so when he finished sacking the capital city, he had to run home and keep his own country from falling apart in the first place. And this gave a little bit of a reprieve to the northern kingdom. So much so that they could recover and try to launch the counterattack that was mentioned in verse 9. 
Seleucus II, he was mad because they came in and killed his mother, tried to retaliate, but it was a pretty weak retaliation, didn't work. He was quickly forced to retreat back home. But this great victory that the Ptolemies, the, the, the kings of the south had, uh, and, and the death of Laodicea took place in 241 BC. That's 289 years before Daniel recorded this prophecy. No human can do this. Again, say it with me, church. Who can prophesy like this? God can. Nobody else. This chapter cannot be explained apart from the work of a a God who is totally and completely sovereign. Now, I'm going to continue reading in verse 10 in just a moment. But when we come to verse 10, we're kind of reaching a a turning point in history. Because so far, the, the southern kingdom, the Ptolemies, they've been the dominant kingdom. But the tide is going to start to shift now, and we're going to see the Seleucid king Antiochus III. And the rest of our passage focuses in and around this one man, Antiochus III. So look at verse 10 with me. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress." Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come on with, great, with a great army and abundant supplies. <clears throat> So Seleucus II, he is now dead. The northern king that we just talked about, he is dead. His oldest son tried to reign. He was assassinated very quickly. And now his younger son, Antiochus III, arises in his place. He was a big deal. This, this is probably the, this is what they consider the greatest king of the Seleucid kingdom. And they called him Antiochus the Great. And he was a great, young, dynamic leader, he was a, an expert military strategist, and he, he was the one that delivered them most of their great victories. And we read in these verses about some of those victories. We read about this great army that he organized, this great campaign that he led against the king of the south. But in the midst of this campaign, there was a new king on the southern throne, Ptolemy IV. I know they're not very original with their names. I went to high school with, with two brothers, and they had the same first name. They were only two years apart. I don't know why their dad named them both, the exa- both after himself. He must have been taking notes from the Ptolemies because there's like seven or eight Ptolemies. But um, it was weird. But they need to learn that there's more than one name. At least the northern king, they have a couple names. But yeah, you're going to see. We're going to keep seeing the Ptolemies over and over. But history shows us that this one, Ptolemy IV, he was the worst. He, he was one of the worst kings in history. He was known for his pride, for his wickedness. The first thing he did when he became king was he killed his mom. And then after that, he killed his uncle. And after that, he killed his younger brother. And then after that, he married his sister. Not even his half-sister like the guy earlier, his full sister. This man cared nothing about anybody but himself. He did not care for his people. He was consumed with luxury and pleasure. And rather than going out to, to quell this incoming military force from the north, he sat around his palace indulging in this luxury as the enemy inched closer and closer. And eventually they got a little too close to be comfortable and that made him angry 
because he had to step away from his debauchery and luxury. And he raises a, a massive army to come out and confront the large army of the north. And they had this massive battle at the city of Raphia. And this battle was massive. It, it was warfare on an incredible scale. Uh, the, the Ptolemies, the south, they had 70,000 troops, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 war elephants. I didn't even know that there were war elephants, but they had a whole bunch of them. And the north, they had 62,000 people, 6,000 cavalry, and over 100 war elephants. This is a massive battle. But verse 11 tells us that Antiochus, he would raise this great army, but it would be given into the hand of the southern king. And that is exactly what happened. Ptolemy IV won this battle. His army put down 17,000 men in that battle. And in the shadow of such a great victory, it just filled his heart with even more pride. I mean, he really thought he was the man. His pride skyrocketed and he returned to his life of luxury and leisure. But his people frequently rebelled and so he killed them. And so this man in his life truly did kill tens and tens of thousands. Uh, the, the, the Hebrew here says myriads of thousands. This man was responsible for the death of so, so many people. But this massive battle did take place in 217 BC, which means Daniel prophesied about this 313 years earlier. Again, church, no one can do this. Like we, we cannot read Daniel chapter 11 and have any doubt that this is the word of God. But despite this great victory, the tide was turning because as Daniel told us, the south would not prevail. Ptolemy IV, he wasted his life away in luxury and he eventually died and left his son, you guessed it, Ptolemy V, to take the throne and clean up all of his mess. Unfortunately, he was only six years old, so it was a tall order for him. But the north would capitalize on this royal upheaval and 15 years later, they would return and finally flip the tables here and they would put the southern kingdom under their boot. Look at verse 14. <clears throat> In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. <clears throat> you guys ever been caught in the middle of an argument between two people that you care about? It's not a fun place to be, right? Because maybe it's two friends or maybe it's two family members, but you're just, you're, you're stuck in the middle. And no matter what, if you pick a side, even if somebody's right, if you pick a side, it's gonna hurt the other person and, it, and it's gonna cause problems in your relationship. That's what it was like to be the Jewish people. Right? They're caught in the middle of these two warring kingdoms, right on the border of these two. And if they choose the wrong side, there's, there's dire consequences. Right? If, you, if you support the north and then power shifts, okay, you're all in trouble and you're probably gonna get killed. If you support the south and the power shifts, you're still gonna get killed. I mean, it's like they're caught, they're like a kid caught in the middle of feuding parents. Only here, the parents are a lot scarier and try to kill you if you pick the other parent. Super fun time in Israel's history. But many of these Jews, they did choose a side. They chose to rebel against the South. And even though they were losing the war, the king decided, oh, well, I'm going to put you down anyways. He came in and had his general kill this Jewish rebellion. 
Antiochus, the, kingdom, the king of the north, would deliver the kill shot when they came to the city of Sidon. They seized the city. The, uh, the south surrendered to Antiochus, and he took possession of all of that land, the entire promised land, everything that God had promised to the people of Israel. That siege took place in 198, B, 198 BC, which means Daniel told us about it 332 years in advance. So Antiochus stood in the glorious land, that's the promised land, with destruction in his hand. At this point, he had absolute authority. Really, the king of the south was the only person who could stand in his way, but they're, they're pretty much irrelevant now. He has established a firm hold on this entire area. So from a human perspective, no one can tell this man what to do. No one can stay his hand. His authority is absolute. But that authority would not last very long. And it would not last a second longer than God desired. Let's read the last few verses of the passage. <clears throat> he shall set his face to come with strength, come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give them the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. So after the king of the north seizes the, the promised land, he decides, failing to learn from his predecessors, I'm gonna try another political marriage. I'm gonna give my daughter to the south, but all that blew up in his face just like it did the previous time. And then he sets his sights, his sights on the islands of the Mediterranean. And he's successful for a little while, but he didn't know that Rome had been waiting on the wings. They were growing, growing in strength, gaining more power, and eventually they decided to step in and strip Antiochus of his authority. So in 190 BC, a Roman force of only 30,000 defeated a much, much larger northern force of 70,000. Then two years later, Rome forced Antiochus III to sign a treaty that essentially surrendered almost all of his territory, all of his military strength. He had to send 20 hostages to Rome to ensure that he wouldn't rebel, and he had to pay an annual tax of 1,000 talents, which is way more money than any of us have. This guy got the absolute butt-whooping of a century, embarrassed by a force that was half his size. And then verse 19 tells us he turned back to his own fortresses. That means because he couldn't pay this tax, he decided to take it out on his own citizens. And he said, fine, in order to pay Rome, I'm gonna start looting the temples of my own people. He'd walk into the temples, go to their treasuries and steal their idols and their precious metals. As you would expect, his citizens did not take too kindly to this. And in 187 BC, Antiochus entered the wrong temple. He came in, he looted this temple that was dedicated to Zeus, but this time, the people fought back. They grabbed their torches, their pitchforks, formed an angry mob, ran him out of the temple, and they beat him to death in the streets. Antiochus III, Antiochus the Great, devoted his whole life to amassing power and fame for himself, but in the end, he stumbled and fell, never to be found again, just as Daniel said he would. I mean, he ascended to great heights. Where is he now? Where did all this self-exaltation lead him? 
In the end, it left him broken and beaten to death on the ground. Nobody sees him any longer. If we didn't dig through historical records, we wouldn't even know his name. But that's what pride does. It leads us to think that glory is ours for the taking. But in the end, we find that glory, it was never ours to take. It all belongs to the Lord. And we can learn that in life or like each of these kings, we can learn it in death. Your pride will only leave you empty and broken. The final king here in verse 20 is a man named Seleucus IV, the son of Antiochus III. And it says that he reigned for just a few days because in comparison, his reign was far, far shorter. And just as Daniel predicted, he had an exactor of tribute, a tax collector that he would send around to collect the money so that he could pay the Romans. This tax collector was a man named Heliodorus. And this, again, might seem like a really odd detail for Daniel to include because all of these kings had tax collectors. So why does Daniel then focus in on the tax collector of this one specific king? It's a very, very important detail because it's this tax collector who actually poisoned and killed the king so that he could take the throne for himself. This king did not die at the hands of an angry mob like his father. He did not die in battle. He died at the betrayal of his trusted tax collector and advisor. So in 530 BC, Daniel wrote that Rome, who wasn't even on the map yet, that they would come in and embarrass the northern kingdom. He told us about this treaty that Antiochus would be forced to sign with Rome. He told us that Seleucus IV would die. And he told us about the random tax collector who would be the one to kill him. And that happened in 175 BC, 355 years in advance. One more time, church, I want to ask you, who can predict things 355 years in advance? Yes, only God can do this. Like, I, I know this is a lot of history, but is this not incredible? Like, if somebody asks you why you believe the Bible, man, show them Daniel 11. This history is so detailed and specific, almost 400 years in advance. Like, I know it might feel like a little much, the, the, the history for you, but, but these details should leave us in awe of God and his word. I mean, how can you see what Daniel has recorded here? So much detail. I mean, the, the, the family and political drama included here, centuries in advance, and not be blown away by the wisdom and power of our God. And, and this is so important because we live in a day where even Christians, so-called Christians, question the authority and the trustworthiness of God's word. And we see this all the time from, from the rest of the world, but even many pastors I see now, they're like, you know, yeah, it, it's, it's a good starting point. It points us in the right direction, but it's not perfectly trustworthy. There's faults, there's errors in God's word. But that's craziness. I mean, look at this. Look at this. Put the chart up, please, Vaughn. <clears throat> 207 years. 200, 218, I think. 218. I can't read that far. 284, 289, 313, 332, 355. And next year, or next week, there will be even more fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy proves that God's word is trustworthy. That's principle number one. God's word is trustworthy and the fulfilled prophecy proves it. And, and if God's word can be trusted, 
on these random kings and rulers and the, and the tiny details of their wars and betrayals and their lives, how much more confidence should we have in the rest of God's word? Before I studied Daniel, I didn't even know Ptolemy's first through fifth existed. Never heard of them. They're nobodies in the scope of history. They're not major rulers. They didn't do anything noteworthy. They were just mean and killed people. That's all they did. But even the tiniest details of their reign were known and shared by God ahead of time. And if he can do that, then you guys, we have no reason to doubt what he has revealed in the rest of the prophets, in the law, in the gospels, in the epistles, in what he has told us about his son, Jesus Christ. This is God's word. It is trustworthy. It is sufficient to provide us everything that we need for salvation, for obedience, for our sanctification. It teaches us everything we need to know to have true joy and lasting satisfaction in Jesus. Let God's word shape you. Let it permeate every aspect of your heart because it is trustworthy above everything else. Every other source of wisdom, of insight, of advice in your life is secondary to God's word because no one else can do this. No one can produce a book like this. Only God's word is that trustworthy. And the fulfilled prophecy that we just spent the last 40 minutes looking at proves it. Principle number two, all of history moves according to God's sovereign plan. God didn't need to include all of the detail that he included here, right? Like, like it would have been enough for him to say, hey, Alexander is gonna show up and he's gonna put down Persia. Great, that would have happened. That still would have been incredible. But he went further than that. And he said, hey, Alexander's gonna do that, but his kingdom will splinter into four and his sons are gonna have no part and it's gonna go to four of his generals. He didn't need to tell us of the failed political marriage of Berenice and that she would be killed in that political maneuver. He could have just said, hey, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, they aren't gonna like each other. They're gonna fight and battle for 100 years, but he didn't do that. He, he goes further to remind his people that he is sovereign and that his word is trustworthy, that God is in control even over the tiniest details of human history. Because for Israel, it probably felt like these kings were in control, like they were the ones in, the, in charge, but the world was not turning on the whims of prideful and wicked rulers. It moves according to the sovereign word of God. Check the history books yourself. You can, you can find all this information, I'm sure, on Wikipedia. All of these, this history of these Greek kingdoms. And what you're gonna find is that for all of their scheming, for all of their planning, for all of their military efforts, for all of their own wisdom and their own pride, not one of them deviated in the slightest degree from what God told us would happen in the book of Daniel. God was working even through these men and their wicked and prideful schemes to accomplish his own plan. And the pride of these kings, yes, they caused death and destruction. It caused suffering and misery, especially for God's people Israel. Yet, it was a part of God's plan. And you guys, we need to look at our own suffering in this same light. Because whether it's caused by the pride of somebody else, a wicked ruler like it's happening in this chapter, 
whether it's caused by your own sin or, or maybe it's just simply the fact that we live in a fallen world. None of the suffering that we face is surprising God because all of it is within his control. Every detail is being sovereignly moved along toward the accomplishment of his good and gracious and perfect plan. So though our suffering might feel out of control, it might wear on us. You can trust it's never outside of God's control. In his perfect wisdom, he's allowed that suffering on you. And I tell you that because he intends to use it for his glory and for our good. I mean, it should be a great relief that this God who's proven himself to be trustworthy, to be gracious, to be good and kind and loving, it should be a great relief that he is in control of our suffering. He is deeply in tune with what we are walking through. He knows every tiny, minute detail of your life, the ins and outs of the miseries you're enduring. But it is a relief to know that he is in control and that our suffering is not without purpose. He is present with you in that. He is sustaining you in that. And he has promised that all things, including the miseries that we face in this life, are moving towards the fulfillment of a much, much greater plan than we could possibly imagine. God's word is trustworthy. And he is moving all of history toward the accomplishment of his plan. Toward the coming of a good and perfect king. Not one of the, the, the morons that we read about here in chapter 11. Not one of the, the cycle of wicked kings and rulers that, that continues today. That cycle of wicked ruler after wicked ruler will come to an end when that better king arrives. It's a king who, who, who doesn't go out and kill myriads of thousands of people, but one who lays down his own life for his people. A king who died so that you and I might live. And Jesus has come once already, right? He, he came to pay the penalty that we deserve for our sin. And now the offer of forgiveness and salvation is on the table. But you have to take it. Are you guys ready for that day when Christ returns, when that greater king arrives? Have you trusted in Jesus and submitted to him as king over all things? Because when he comes, the faithful, man, it will be a great day for them. They will reign with Christ. But to the unfaithful, those who do not know Jesus, they will go away into eternal suffering and punishment. Repent and confess your sin. Believe in Jesus. Make him king of your life. But I know I'm talking to a room that many of you have already done that. So my encouragement to you is to endure with obedience. Because I know some of you are walking through horrible things right now. Things that, 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 that just break my heart. And, and, and your elders are praying for you. We know that you're walking through those things, but endure with obedience. Be encouraged because God has promised to use our hardships. Use them for his glory and for our good. He uses them to refine us, to teach us, to mature us. We're gonna talk much more about just a theology of suffering in general next week. But he uses those things for our benefit. 
None of it is lost on him. He will strengthen you to be faithful in the midst of that hardship. So when it feels like you can barely keep your head above water, persevere. Walk in obedience. Trust in the sovereign work and word of God. Look forward with anticipation of the day when Christ does actually return because when he does, that suffering will be forever done away with. And you're gonna look back in awe of the way that God sovereignly guided history toward that moment. God predicted all of these things centuries in advance in every detail when according to plan. Find confidence in that because the same God that controlled things then is still in control today. And even the worst things, our lowest points in life are still going according to plan. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truthfulness of your word. And we thank you that you have demonstrated how trustworthy it is through the fulfillment of prophecy. Lord, I pray that everyone here would just be amazed at the way that you, you told us these things would come about and then they did. Lord, I pray that we would have an unshakable confidence and trust in your word, that we would let it be the guiding factor in every facet of our life. And Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign and that you are in control. That even as we walk through the miseries of this life, that we can look to you and find help and comfort. And that we can look forward in anticipation to the day when our king returns and he sets all things right. Lord, we long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray, amen.